everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where we use the Forgotify website to take a listen to tracks on Spotify that have, until this point, not been played. Well, that's what we normally do, and we're still going to do that, but this is a very special episode. For those of you out there who are regular listeners to our show, you might remember from uh, one or two episodes ago, uh, we listened to a band, James Edge and the Mind Step, and, and we had a lot of fun digging into the chords there and, and listening to that track. And James has very graciously reached out to us and agreed to be on our show. So we're really happy to have him here, and, and we'll get a chance to, to talk with him and get his thoughts on stuff. So say hello, James. Hello. Lovely to be here. We're so awesome glad to, to have, you. have you. Yeah. yeah. We never, we always joke on our show, like so-and-so, if you're listening, please reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. And you have been the uh, technically the second to reach out, but the first to actually agree to this absolute chaos of being on the show. So thank you for that. Uh, you, you have to say yes to these things, basically. <laughs> I think you, you just regret it. You, you regret it more if you don't say yes. I mean, apart from the apart from the inten intense anxiety for days after about all the stupid things you said while you were on there. Um, but yeah, you just, you just have to live with Oh, don't worry. We've been publishing our stupid stuff for 11 weeks now and yeah. more. So... <laughs> But uh, so our, today we're going to jump into a just a couple selections of music that uh, Robbie and I have dug up from the Forgotify Troves. Did I say Forgotify? The Forgetify Troves. And uh, Robbie, no, it is should... Forgotify. It is Forgotify, right? You you poisoned yeah, Matt, the well of my mind. <laughs> oh, don't blame Robbie for this. Uh, but so let me go ahead and get and get the and Robbie, you've given us our first selection for this week, right? That's right. So. Uh, my track comes from Rick Dinsmore, is the artist, and it's off of an album titled Texas Highway. To talk a little bit about Rick and, and sort of um, his career, you can find on his website that he had signed to several record labels when he was young. He lists Vault, Fantasy, United Artists, and looks like he spent some time both in Nashville and in Los Angeles before he eventually moved back to Texas. And it seems as if these days he's uh, in a group with is his wife. And it seems like they're very happy kind of creating these songs in their Texas home. But let, let's take a listen. You might be surprised. So this is You Always Want What You Can't Have by Rick Dinsmore from the album Texas Highway. Sometimes it seems so clear And other times it's not Why you always want what you can't have You don't want what you got No, no, no You know, you might have been led to believe we were in for one genre Given the title of the track uh, Or the title of the album, I should say but uh, yeah, we've got sort of a reggae-inspired uh, tune here. And like Matt pointed out earlier when, when we were listening to it before the show, it's got my favorite thing where you've got basically the title and the answer to whatever the title is kind of presenting really straightforward in a way I find very satisfying. Yeah, I think we were all greeted a little bit by surprise when we heard this song because, again, the, uh, the album name, the artwork, and even the name... Even the name Rick Dinsmore gives off a slight Doug Dimmodome kind of <laughs> image in the head, right? And it's just a cowboy this, name. Yeah, so you've got this Rasta cowboy. I don't know what I picture here, really, but definitely like some combination of, of the cowboy hat, but also like 
I'm just imagining some very bad dreads also going with this, and like maybe a drug rug sweater. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit of be a, hot. a bit hot of a hodgepodge. Why don't we uh, let uh, James? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you what you would think of something like this? I uh, I there's something about the vocal that um, I, I wonder whether uh, I, I sort of wonder whether he's reggae influenced or, or reggae or influenced by somebody who's reggae influenced there's there's something that kind of reminds me of police era sting vocals about about rick yeah there's a couple of there's a, something about the guitar sound as well that's really really reminding me of um it's reminding me of a really specific guitar sound and i'm sort of leaning towards um steve miller band i don't think that's actually what it is i, I think there's i think there's, there's there's something from like um car trips with my dad and I'll, it'll probably come to me in about half an hour. The the, the guitar sound. I'm thinking of what what maybe it's a, a kind of a a, a, a a white reggae thing that that um, the, the the police the sting influence thing is coming through for me. Is anyone else getting that? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a great comparison. The guitar is something that you know you can't quite put your finger on it, but it's something that feels like it should be obvious. You know, this kind of Matt, you're you're tapping your I think head it's, there. it's the pedal effect. I don't know the the name for it because I'm not a guitar person, but like that that like walk walk kind of sound. Yeah. Uh, it might just be like a wah wah pedal. I, I think I, it, I think it is. Uh, I think there's I think there's a wah pedal going on there. I, I'm not an electric guitar guy. I'm not really an effects guy, but yeah, I feel that there's um I think there's definite wah going on. Because I think the wah wah pedal, it's it's almost like a quintessential part of the the reggae genre right having that what 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 sound on like the melodic guitar part as i'm sort of listening to the um the rhythmic elements i i kind of i'm feeling reggae but i can't quite tell why technically there's no kind of real there's not not any kind of real stress on the offbeat but there's a definite offbeat feel to it but i was just gonna say it, it does kind of remind me a little bit that 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 riff, that guitar rhythm, that bass rhythm is almost like a second line kind of rhythm because it's not really sort of like you say on the on the backbeat there. But and you know I think maybe the the wah pedal there, the, the guitar, what it, that kind of effect always does for me is it really it's very propulsive rhythmically. I think you get similar sorts of sounds in, in a lot of like funk keyboards where you've got this heavy envelope filter that that kind of you know re really makes the beat. Uh, very clear and kind of emphasizes, I think, both kind of gets a coming and going, you could say. But it is an interesting rhythmic kind of energy. I was actually going to bring up a similar point, um, James. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what makes this, why, why all the components coming together make this feel so reggae when it's not exactly like a standard reggae track, right? You know, you get that strong snare snap right at the beginning, which kind of takes the whole thing off. And I think that's that constant snare snap through the piece helps to ground the beats in a way that make it a little more clearly reggae while still not putting it in the genre. What do you think, Matt? Did anyone else I caught it on my second listen just now. Did anyone else hear the the castanets in the background? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The castanets just really do something for me. Like it's I don't know, it's just it's just kind of funny because castanets have such like an image in your mind of like, mm. you know the the red dress tango dancers with like the castanets and like the rose in their mouth but i think the thing that we were all kind of to get back to the vocal thing this is what did it he's doing an accent mm. he's putting on like a like a reggae yeah. accent yeah from having had a, a quick listen to to some of the other one of the other tracks it doesn't seem to be a special thing for this track either because i think you 
you get that sometimes where you have an artist who's who's otherwise centered in another genre does a, a reggae track sometimes well you'll you'll get a hint of the accent just for the one track but it does it seems to be rick style and again much in the the kind of um police era sting kind of in, in that way and I'm, i've personally never been sure that, i mean there's an obvious like strong reggae influence in the in the, the rhythmic material from the the from the police that that era of the police um but i, I don't know the police well enough uh, weirdly i studied the police in um in uh, secondary school um I remember having a whole um remember having a whole music lesson on walking on the moon which was which was quite good um but yeah that's my that's kind of the the, the groundings of my technical knowledge about the police really i've not i've not it's not something i've delved into a great deal or Austin, really that's very very surface my understanding of the, the music of the police um, probably probably um talking ahead of myself a bit i don't i don't know what to what extent there is a reggae influence on the police it was just something that jumped out of me in the in the, in the vocal tone no i i think that that is a solid comparison and i i think in it is a very peculiar like, like we, we talked a bit before we began about about the voice and the accent uh, and just the I don't know. The, to me, the quality of the voice is is kind of particular. I don't know. I don't know exactly why the the reggae influence sort of jumps out immediately, but I can say that I I, I like I mentioned before. I always like a good chorus, a good kind of thematic hook, and I think this one especially is sort of interesting in that it's this uh, harmonic rhythm, right? It's mostly just one chord per bar for the whole introduction, and then when you finally get you know the introduction or into the chorus right we finally get i think those the half notes there of the two five progression and then i don't know if we i don't think we got to hear the what follows that bit of it but that's sort of the vocal break and then the rhythm drops out a little so it, i think what is very effective in this track for me is all this rhythmic variety of sort of one static chord one per bar and then for one measure it's two chords per bar and then sort of all drops out to have a um, this sort of cascading vocal harmony. Yeah, that vocal harmony is like a that was a big moment for me too because that that seems like a big reconciliation of this the two genres maybe at play here, right? Because I think it's safe to say that Rick Dinsmore seems like he's more in a country kind of um, genre of music typically, and that vocal stack the ba da dum where I think that's hanging out on a five chord and elongating that five chord before resolving to the one. That was like a weird little, uh, I think I said Eagles or Leonard Skinner moment, kind of, and then just a you know back to the roots maybe, and then back into the reggae track. Yeah, Robbie, I'm just wondering in this guy's bio, is there, is there like any talk that he's like a Jamaican transplant where he like grew up and uh, you know like on the island and then no, moved to no. Texas later in his life? Could you well, imagine? Uh, that could be the case, but there's nothing like that in anything I could find. Seems like he was uh nashville texas la then texas again from what i can gather yeah i mean it's just such a specific accent right it's a specific sound to a very specific part of the world so it's uh just interesting and it, it is probably worth bearing in mind from my perspective i have just massively assumed that from basically from his album cover and his name and the genre he's in that he is a white guy singing in a, a, a vaguely jamaican accent um for all i know he could be uh, a black guy doing doing country um that's but, well uh, uh, you can rest easy there your assumption was correct he, he to be i'm more comfortable now <laughs> a very a very pale gentleman but it's a good song yeah no it was great 
Very nice. It was. I, I like the. I really like the the, the incongruity of it. Really, it's that 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 kind of disparity between the album cover and and, and the name and the, uh, the the funk intro really hits you just just given what you're expecting. Yeah, that was a nice left hook, Robbie. A good a good curveball to start the day. I think That's it came from left field, is what you were looking for, instead of left, left hook. You missed you mixed your sports you, metaphors. That's yeah, called you, a uh, a metaphor. Punch you in the jaw. Yeah. <laughs> That's a metaphor when you when you accidentally screw up two um two idioms like uh it's yeah you it's combine the, them yeah what's what's that really famous one it's not rocket surgery yeah it's not mm-hmm. rocket yeah. surgery yeah 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 if you guys had let it go we could have gotten away with it nobody would have known <laughs> no you could have gotten away with it <laughs> uh, but okay now speaking of um, confusion that brings us to uh, to my track for the day so I guess this was a little. I don't know, Eric, you said that this error in the Spotify system kind of happens sometimes. So I came across this artist called Akira the Dawn. And unfortunately, it seems like the track name was mixed up. But Eric very kindly informed us that the the album, the album is correct. So it's Akira the Dawn. The album is called Living in the Future. However, all of the tracks listed on Spotify seem to belong to another album by Akira the Dawn. So this this track name on Spotify, for those of you who might be going looking for it, is called All I Want for Christmas is You, and then in parentheses, End World Peace. And I was I was very struck by this. I was like, I wonder what kind of strange uh, tribute to Mariah Carey I'm going to be listening to. And it's it's about that time where Mariah Carey is defrosting out of her cave to make her seasonal revenue with this song. But this song is not that song at all. This song is actually called Living in the Future two like the number two right eric i believe so yeah yeah so this is actually called living in the future two by akira the dawn and i'll just play uh, about the first 30 or seconds or so i'm a man called adam i'm living in the future i make all my tunes on my computer i update my website all the time i like to spit a little bit but it's more than rhyme i find tv abhorrent so i stream shows or i use torrents the band won many more spring from inside I guess that's why they call it the hydra <laughs> and i'm never alone i've got the whole internet in my mobile phone if i'm lost got maps on my mobile phone yo i write my raps on my mobile phone and my mobile phone is a snitch because it tells them boy them where i am all day but they know anyway because i just put it in yeah, so I can just uh, talk a little bit about Akira the Dawn here. So Akira the Dawn, real name Adam Narkiewicz, is a British musician, DJ, and producer. And his music production traverses the boundaries between pop, hip-hop, Indian dance. And it says here that he lists Ice Cube, Adam Ant, Morrissey, Big Bang, Leonard Cohen, David Bowie, and the Wu-Tang Clan as some of his major influences. And uh, I think you guys saw when I was just kind of scrolling through his Spotify earlier, uh, we have another very prolific creator here. And especially, um, you can check him out on YouTube, where he's also Akira the Don. And I think since about 2017, he's been releasing these smaller projects and mixtapes. Uh, mixtapes to try and form this new genre that he's created. He refers to it as meaning wave. So I think he's kind of jumping on all these wave kind of genres and we saw some lo-fi stuff too. But uh, yeah, just a really interesting sound. Uh, when I played this track, I was immediately kind of sucked into this this very poppy, glittery, electronic sound world that it's it's almost like frenetic at times with all the different sounds especially if you're wearing headphones robbie why why don't you seem like you have some thoughts about about this track why don't you tell me tell me what you're thinking 
I think it's a very creative use of that, you know, those that old telephone noise, right? Kind of chopping up the, the that dead air sound you would get on old landlines and using that, I think, to, to an interesting effect uh, to create the beat there. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I can't say genre is always kind of a, a, a tricky thing, especially for a, a lot of these uh, indie artists and indie producers. Creating something that's like its own genre, you kind of get into like almost an argument of semantics sometimes. Like, well, what are the defining characteristics of this genre that other genres don't necessarily have? So I, I'm, I'm curious, what do you guys think Meaning Wave? Does he say what he means by that or, or kind of what the artistic outline of that is? Or Yes, I've got the definition right here, which I neglected to read earlier. So this genre he created referred to as Meaning Wave is a fusion of wave music with meaningful lyric content and lo-fi hip-hop. And wave music referring kind of to the the multitude of genres that have spawned since the kind of vaporwave movement that emerged around the early 2010s. So good question, Robbie. I mean, it's, it's like upbeat, kind of poppy hip-hop, right? And it's meant to make you feel good. My... I think pretty much the most I've heard of any kind of British hip-hop ends and begins with Dave, the rap artist, hip-hop artist. That's that's just his name. It's just Dave if you Google him or uh, look him up on Spotify. Are you, are you familiar with Dave James? I, I know he's sort of blown yeah. up in the last couple years. Uh, and yeah. I really like yeah. his stuff. But, I mean, this isn't that kind of sound other than uh, a British British accent. Yes, the, the it's, it's, it's the accents quite an interesting character actually. Akira, the the Don, looking at the the Wikipedia because he grew seems to have grown up in Wales, um, and there's actually quite a famous Welsh. Have you you guys ever heard of a of Goldie looking chain? Probably a Goldie looking chain. Goldie looking chain, probably <clears throat> a, a very British phenomenon. They're a uh, they're, they're a Welsh. A Welsh rap collective, um, and they 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 were around. I think it was it was kind of like early two thousands up to twenty tens. They're probably still probably still going, but they were um, they they rapped in sort of broad Welsh accents as well. Um, I'm not going to try to do a Welsh accent, um, and probably uh, I guess the only famous ones to do it. But if if you said that you were going to be listening to it, if if you told a British person you were going to listen to a rapper who grew up in Wales and had now moved to LA, that's probably what you'd imagine. You'd probably imagine something like Goldie Looking Chain. Give, give, they, Goldie Looking Chain, more of, more of a, a bit more of a novelty act, I guess. The, they did play very much on the fact that they were um, lads from Wales who were rapping. Um, but they were, they were really successful, and they did, some, they did some really, really good tracks that were... It, it, had a bit of a comedy element to them as well. And musically, there's no similarity as well. It, it just, just reminded me of them because I just, just spotted that he grew up in Wales and he's now a, he's now a Welsh rapper living in LA, uh, rapping in uh, an English accent, um, which, which just makes him quite interesting. Um, and he, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's it, it, the, the British accent thing is the thing that then, then makes it tempting for someone like me who has quite a kind of shallow understanding of the genre it, it makes you immediately want to start talking about other like maybe like grime artists you've heard of but you're probably making the comparison purely because they're rapping in a london accent and he's rapping in a london accent right. and that gives you a kind of a surface a surface link 
to between the two. I, I, I would imagine the musical similarities are probably otherwise quite. Uh, there's probably not many, but but yeah, so, uh, my my touch points would be similar, like Dave, um, uh, Dizzy Rascal, um, Stormzy, effectively guys that guys that do hip hop in a, uh, a a grime hip hop subgenres in a British accent. But they're they're kind of. I, I think, as you said, Eric, I think a bit more. Akira the Don's a bit more poppy, quite a, quite quite a lot more glittery on the production. I very like the production. I think it's um I always find it very interesting with people this prolific how they keep up that level of kind of quality on the production. I guess definitely, yeah. It's it's you you think how long must each individual yeah. track take to to put together, and then you compound that with you know all those those albums and all those EPs we saw. It's it's kind yeah. of mine kind of boggles trying yeah. to. I'm also like a huge fan for these kind of uh, found sound beats, right? Like a lot of those, I can't quite place what half of those little electronic beeps and whirs were, but they're somewhere like deep in the recesses of my mind, like back there with the dial-up modem sound, right? And I, I love it when, when those kind of uh, discrete elements can come together to form this like greater thing. And I'm, I'm a huge sucker for that. Uh, it reminds me just a just a little bit of the kind of music that was happening around the postal service because their their electronics guy was jimmy tamborello uh, i think he's also known as like his artist name dintel like d d n t e l and like they did they did kind of stuff like that where like these these little beats of discrete elements would come together almost like music concrete kind of mm. kind of like uh that's I that's guess. always my way into these um stuff like this is when you start hearing found sound samples and and stuff like that going in the background and and just chopped up day-to-day stuff yeah it always i think my my way in is always music concrete and really interests me the link between modern i guess produced music for for lack of a a better blanket term and a music concrete i find quite interesting um james you actually mentioned that uh, you also went through um you know a music school like uh you did your your master's in music composition is that correct yeah that's right yeah, like I don't know about you, but I had to take an electronic composition class. Yeah, and, same. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I was a bit intimidated by the genre. I've always been a little bit tech. Mm. I don't know, unlucky, but also just kind of confused by by tech. And um, we actually, for our final project of the first semester of electronic music, we had to do a music concrete project. Everyone else was, you know, coming up with these very creative and abstract kind of kind of things. But at the time, you know, I was. I think like a sophomore in college, so I was still really into like, I mean, the Postal Service is an all-time favorite, but also, you know, Styrofoam, A Smaller Artist, and Passion Pit. So I did a music concrete project where I went around banging on all different things around the School of Music, and then I made like a beat out of like those kinds of things. And like, um, Mm. that was, I technically got away with it. It was music concrete. Yeah. It it technically fit the uh, project description, but... Yeah, I don't. I don't know about you. Like, what's your take? How much do you do incorporate that kind of stuff into your songwriting at all? I. It's one of those things. I would. It, I. I would. I would love to incorporate almost everything. Um, and it's something I really struggle with. Is is kind of focus, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's like I love. I love music concrete. I love a three-minute pop song, and I love horrendous, dissonant modern classical, concerti. Um, and I kind of want to do them all. I think. There was a bit more of that on my first album, which the song you you talked about last the, the other week. The the, the sort of the album that came from, there was a lot more kind of um, studio fun and um, stuff going on, and you know recording 
weird parts of pianos and turning them backwards and, and that going on in the background of that. So I think a bit of the Music Concrete experience did come to that album. And I did another, I, I have another band, it's a, a duo called Nia Shelley, um, which um, is, is um, started as a project of a collaborator of mine, Sonia Chenry. She's an artist and um, a songwriter. And I, in, in a sense, it started with her giving me the opportunity to vandalise her songs and her art, a lot of her, a lot of her art is about the, kind of the essence of objects and how they exist and the, the the kind of thingness of them and a lot of the album and a lot of the sounds on the album we, we actually sampled one of her installations which uh, one of uh, she did an installation called room which was it, it was basically a room with lots of objects in the, in it and um, I, I probably shouldn't talk about it too much because I'll misinterpret mis misrepresent it terribly but um she took as part of that a recording of that room and uh, we, we did a song called Tanglements on on our album Tang um, Tumbled Out by, now, by Night which is on Spotify as well so uh, Nia Shelley Tumbled Out by Night is the, the artist in the album. Yeah we used the recording of that on a song called Tanglements and because we were we, we recorded the album over probably four or five years just doing bits and pieces in in the studio and it, again at its heart it's uh, a lot of it is traditional songs that are song written songs but then there's a lot of quite dissonant arrangement going on and a lot of found sound stuff kicking about in the background and also accidental sound stuff so things would happen like we would accidentally leave a microphone on during a take and there would be feedback happening but but very harmonically and we'd, we'd sort of work we'd work in mistakes but uh yeah no my, my music concrete experience was uh I, I really enjoyed it i kind of didn't it was probably a bit long bit longer ago so this would have been in 2001 2002 that sort of time so it's not like we were working in the dark ages or anything we, we weren't we weren't on tape or anything um but um i actually know i tell i did record a lot of it on tape i recorded a lot of it on a dat tape from the, the university sort of lent out <clears throat> and, and but quite a nice microphone but but just like one of those battery powered condensers I think the, the guy, I forget the guy who taught the, taught the module, but he was, I think he was really good and did a lot of, um, I can even remember, I think it was Hildegard, I think it was Hildegard Landstrom's breathing room made a really big impression on me. I think I've got that right. It's such a long time ago, but it must've made a big impression. I think I've literally heard it once and I still remember it. It's a person in a room breathing, um, <laughs> basically, but the way, the way it, it it's what a, a real kind of, sound composition and i think the way we were certainly the way i what i took away from it and how i understood the concept of composing with sound it, i did find it quite inspiring and it's something i kind of always intend to pick up and it's something that we probably would pick up on future nice shelley projects because i know it's something that sonia's really interested in as well but but yeah the, so the, the composition i made uh, I, the one thing i remember specifically i've probably still got it somewhere but one thing i remember specifically was um kind of morphing the sound of an egg frying so that kind of you get those Sort of real high frequency snapping sounds and a ping pong ball i think it was or maybe it was rain it was it was something but but sort of marrying the the common sound elements and not really manipulating the but but you it, it was all about following one sound through to another with common elements and it was uh yeah it was really interesting but i i've literally done it once and never done it again but i would really like to do it again yeah that's how i it's... feel about music and crap too yeah <laughs> It sounds like a universal experience because I'm pretty sure Robbie and I had to do this too, even yeah. for our degrees uh, in university. And I know I was incredibly uncreative and just recorded, I think, a ping pong ball, you know, like the classic ping pong mm. ball sound and then made like a beat out of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> out of ping pong balls. But I don't know. What about you, Robbie? Uh, 
you know, I, I definitely remember being instructed to do that, but I'm having a, a hard time recalling. So I can't remember if this was maybe an assignment I just shirked or maybe my bad. We'll just say my memory is bad. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Robbie's unaltered memory. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad from the time. How did we start talking about music on crap? I think because oh, of yeah. Akira, Akira the Don. The Don. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Akira the Don's music concrete influence. That's where we came from. But oh, I wow. think we, we kind of exhaust, unless anyone has any burning desire to, to say something else about Akira the Don. What were you going to say, Robbie? Well, no, I was just going to say that this idea of music concrete and using found sounds as a kind of a long lineage in hip hop and in the production of beats, you know, I think even just noise itself sort of uh, is. Sampling. Say, well, sampling and even just non-melodic elements are, are oftentimes, especially in, in like, uh, I don't know, I, I think of early 90s hip-hop and, and production on the East Coast, where a lot of it, or an intrinsic part of it, along with the samples, along with the, the, the drum beats and stuff, is this element of just sounds, just noise, that kind of rests on top of this harmonic, you know, the harmonic bass or whatever the beats are. But yeah, yeah, sure. You get a lot of like street noise and, and stuff true. in those in those early albums and i'm even thinking of over like super hyper overproduced like top three company k-pop where there's just like such an obnoxious amount of production that goes into it where if you peel away the layers you've got like whistles and like little there is one very popular song that right before every chorus just used a super reverbed water dropping on water sound <laughs> right before every chorus and like i guess in a way music and cret has very much per like pervaded it's intrinsic right to the that genre yeah so we've kind of gotten a little bit about about your origin story james but would you like to tell us a little bit more about kind of like what was your musical journey like and you know getting to james edge and the mind step yeah yeah i think we've 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 touched on quite a bit really i I, so i guess the the starting point is it's quite a weird starting point actually where where my interest in making music began was and I can pinpoint it really specifically. I was about six years old and I had an audio tape, um, which was uh, an audio tape of Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia series. And um, at some point in that, flutes were mentioned and uh, flutes were played and I liked the flutes. So I think I just decided I wanted to play the flute. And um, uh, I was at a school at the time, which happened that where that happened to be possible. So, um, so yeah, I, start, I started out on the flute, trained on the flute, and I didn't really have any interest in music other than I wanted to play the flute it's it's quite an odd journey the early journey really because um didn't I, I listened to classical music kind of as a, as a an adjunct to learning the flute I guess just because that's what you naturally would would do you know you're playing you're playing Mozart you're playing the Poulenc flute sonata you that, that's what you listen to my I, I loved Queen growing up uh, the other ones I just I, I, yeah, my dad loved Queen so I loved Queen and um, my brother and I used to like Michael Jackson and I think Meat, Meatloaf those were the three that, that we started out with <laughs> basically classical music and those three that was the early musical journey the, where it all branched, branched out I guess was um, one of the other Mindstep members was uh, Avon who's the drummer um, getting to know him in sort of later on in high school he and he was on uh, the same same music courses as me and, and we were sort of playing together he just started I had picked up a guitar several times I'd been I'd been playing the playing the piano again formally playing the piano um sort of uh, you know I was quite a big Rachmaninoff fan on the piano so I was just constantly overtaxing myself technically on the piano I'm not a 
great technical piano player because I think I always went way far ahead of what I should have been doing really. So yeah, just, a Avon literally kind of started teaching me the guitar and I think there was a bit of a thing in that at that time, sort of mid to late nineties, you had to learn uh, how to play a couple of Nirvana songs. You had to learn how to play a couple of Radiohead songs. Um, Street Spirit by Radiohead was probably the first thing I learned to play on the guitar with two fingers. Um, and that literally, I think everything else I then got interested in came from there. So but all of the all of the kind of non-classical side, but I, I guess my, my focus has always stayed close to that kind of those those people who inhabit that kind of gap. So a lot of my influences are, are in the kind of the Bjork kind of area where the get the, the space they inhabit is somewhere between um concert music art music and and and, and pop or whatever or whatever we want to whatever we want to call it um and and yeah so, so yeah just continued kind of formal music education and and sort of did composition alongside being really interested in songwriting and all of those kind of influences of influences of artists you like and you sort of you sort of go to down paths of where i kind of ended up a, a lot of my real interest focused in on um, acoustic guitar players of the 70s at a particular point. So um, uh, at some point, people who start from this kind of guitar indie bands in the UK almost always end up at Nick Drake, um, who you may or may not have come across. Um, so there's a, a singer-songwriter, a British singer-songwriter called Nick, Nick Drake from the, um, he died in, uh, in the 70s. Um, so he's anybody who plays the acoustic guitar in finger picked in in the uk probably is is a nick drake fan and and by extension a fan of uh, one of nick drake's friends john martin um who i guess if i was to have a guitar hero it would probably be my guitar hero um he's he was an amazing guitar player they were both influenced by slightly earlier guitar players uh, sort of really technical folk guitar players like Bert, Bert Janch and John Renborn. Really big influence on my second album was uh, a super group from the 60s called Pentang The Pentangle. So this was Bert Janch, John Renborn, a singer called uh, Jackie McShee, who, who um, still still sings with them. Um, and a double bassist called Danny Thompson, who played with all of these artists who were signed to sort of Island Records in the 70s, John, John Martin and Nick Drake. And Danny Thompson's double bass playing was a massive, it's, it's a thing I really like as well. And He's a big influence on Andy, who plays double bass for me now. Yeah, that that was kind of where the, the non-formal stuff came. But I think it does from a lot of people. For a lot of people, it just kind of spread out from these sort of initial interests, uh, and you, you sort of end up with hundreds of artists. So, but that that's certainly how my guitar playing developed. It was um, it was out of uh, the 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 real sort of complex finger pickers from from the from the sixties and seventies. And uh, the, the, in in England in the early two thousands, we went through this thing that at the time the the, the music press called the new acoustic movement um, that had a, quite a big influence as well. So there were a lot of quite quite small UK bands who I was really interested in at the time. Uh, there's a band called Turing Breaks who were still going, who were quite a big influence. It, it's always been where, where it's all ended up is being really interested in songwriting and writing a nice song. With a, with a nice kind of accessible turn of melody um, and something you can really hook onto, but at the same time, kind of really wanting to vandalize it and and just loving dissonance and loving really complex harmony and just being really interested. More recently, I've kind of opened up a lot more to um, jazz and uh, 
got I went to see um, this uh, Lebanese is a Lebanese microtonal jazz trumpeter, which is a, a phrase that would probably strike terror into the hearts of almost everyone. But it, it, this guy called Ibrahim Malouf is just absolutely blew me away. It was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And again, it's just you, you think microtonal Lebanese jazz trumpet. You think it just sounds completely inaccessible, but it's so it, it somehow ends up being so hooky and amazing. Yeah, so it's it. Uh, I love these people who can 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 do that. I think that's the people who I love who can take, who can marry really hooky stuff, but also just do horrible things and still sell millions of records. I think that's an amazing thing. Um, really, I'm always just 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 in awe of people who've achieved that. I think it's a really great thing. So coming back to Bjork there, I guess I I, I love that uh, you can have. She 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 has some kind of trophy. I think for being the only person to have a a top twenty UK hit in the Lockrian mode and. Probably, um, I don't think Pluto was ever released as a single, but that's the only uh, that's the only octatonic, the only octatonic pop song I know that that actually, except for Just by Radiohead, that's got the the octatonic scale through all the 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 um, the, the guitar the, the guitar patterns in the sort of intros and the that that's uh, but it's over quite diatonic chords, so it's kind of cheesy. For the people listening at home, you are listening to a person that truly loves music and that is i mean that's so amazing to hear because i think we all kind of exist in this realm where getting out of school like of course we all love pop music and robbie's a jazz musician and we've all lived in the jazz world at one point in our lives and of course we've all studied classical music and then i got out of school and found my uh myself playing a lot of the music you're talking about where it's a lot of kind of awful sounds for lack of a better word, or, you know, microtonal or, and stuff like that. And you just learn to love it all. And it, it's so cool to hear how multifaceted as a musician and composer and artist uh, you are, because it's, it's not super common, I think. And I think uh, at the same and, time, you probably find the same thing. You just you still feel guilty for not being multifaceted enough. It's like you can sit here and talk about this stuff all day, but then uh, you see, as soon as I sort of, as, as, you, as you see, as soon as we start trying to talk about hip hop and, and, and I need to start talking about British hip hop acts, I, I, I'm going to get a bit stuck and you just think, well, but then, in a sense it's good. I've still, I've still got all of that to find out about. That's the other way I look at it. It's, it's like you've kind of got this, got all of, you've got all this other music on the back burner that you've still got to learn about. So I think that's, there's a good thing there as well. That, you know, it's all still out there. To, to find out about just because we don't know about it yet I guess we, we can come back to it at some other time <laughs> yeah and for us you know kind of coming across your music on the show uh I think we were all just you know really fascinated right away because Robbie was this was was this your find actually did you bring James yeah, I think it was Robbie's find he was super proud and he should yeah. be he was it's... like guys I found the best song I'm just the best yeah. at this podcast <laughs> I win the podcast <laughs> Robbie, Robbie has some high RNG for for the the podcast, but Don't no, we forget. were we were we were saying I think in the episode like we come across we have to do a lot of digging through for through through Forgotify right like where we actually have to be like uh, this one not so great this is just you know easy to poke fun at don't want to like talk at it in the show but this one when we because we we didn't even record the part where we where we first do the initial listening. I think all of us had such warm reactions to the music, and I personally, I we we all kind of do this. We speculate, like, I wonder what this, who is who is this person, you know? And it makes so much sense to hear about this wildly diverse musical training, because yeah, I I, I mean, I said, me and Robbie, we're big harmony people. When I listen to pop music, I find 
harmony is the thing that interests me the most and continues to interest me the most and like you know how are modern pop artists innovating harmony because at times you know our, our western pop music harmonic vocabulary can get a bit a bit stale and you, you're talking about hooks in music and i can perfectly remember the the melody to to um to your song it has that nice kind of lilting down but then when that flat three comes in and the flat six and it changes in the melody on the like something like that and it's that nice little moment where robbie and i were just you know we're just kind of like bopping our heads along to this nice kind of upbeat sound world and then we we get these nice twists every now and then and it just it just makes so much sense to hear you talking about like the songwriting process for for you and how much you like playing around with these these subtle changes to the musical vocabulary that you can you can get away with while still having a, a good catchy song that everyone likes to listen to at the end of the day yeah and i think that was that is kind of what what, what made me i think that the, the twist thing that you, you picked up in is kind of what what is very rewarding for me to hear someone kind of having have picked up on because it was discovering all, uh, in those kind of really early stages of when your ears are kind of pricking up to to the first time you hear an artist do a particular thing um so it's a good early example for me is 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 Beck, I suppose. A lot of um, when I was getting into kind of a slightly more esoteric popular music, um, Beck was some of uh, early would have been, I guess he would have probably had been about four albums in at that point, and sort of uh, post-mutations, uh, post-overlay and, and coming into when he released mutations. His turn of harmony is is kind of twisted in a, in, in a different way, but it was it's not just, just a memory... From, from that kind of point of getting into music, it was always those interesting turns of chord that just really sort of grabbed my attention. And yeah, it's just really nice to, it's just really nice to know that that does come through. Because um, as we were talking before the podcast, it's it's not something that the average reviewer picks up on when they're talking about your music. Um, some do, which is really which is really cool when it happens. Um, but um, yeah, the average reviewer is more about kind of, you know, this is, this is a folk band or this is a, and it's a bit more, it's a bit more surface, I guess, uh, as you would expect, because that's, it's, it's not their, not their thing, I, I guess. So yeah, very, very, very rewarding to have had someone analyze a song of mine. I think we're also kind of curious, so you mentioned you've got two big albums, but like, you know, what has the, um, what has the music industry been like for you? And maybe what are some of your more recent projects, what you've been up to these days? Uh, weirdness um, of the world aside yeah um so i i would i would say the industry is probably barely aware i exist um so my experience of the industry is it, it, it's probably limited to the the london the london circuit which i'm i'm kind of a bit removed from it i find I, I love playing live i love recording i find preparing to to do those things incredibly stressful and i find promoting incredibly stressful and i'm not very good at it i find social media ex incredibly stressful i'm not very good at it all of which is stuff you've just got to deal with and um you in a sense it's a shame because you can't stop making music because you're not good at those things because you have to make the music because it's in your head and it has to get out it would be nice if in a sense if you could just <laughs> stop and uh, forget about all that stuff but the industry is not why i, I think the, the industry is kind of not why a lot of us are here anymore the without going too much too philosophical i suppose to a degree the listener has abandoned the industry and therefore the industry has kind of abandoned certain artists to a certain degree um which isn't to say obviously that there was 
think the industry as it still exists is still picking up really interesting music. It just doesn't have no one as there's so much interesting music out there now and people are so aware of it. I feel like it's a, the industry as it once existed is redundant to an extent. So I as a listener, I don't need it anymore. I as an artist, I don't, I don't need it anymore. Um, its resources would be useful, I guess, and is useful and its resources are useful to some people um so the, the london the london circuit that still services the industry as it now exists it's um it's nice I, i've been really quite lucky i've i've worked with really good promoters who try to put on a good event and hopefully they make a bit of a living off it but it's hard to see how they manage to do it really at the sort of level a lot of it is good-natured people who love putting on gigs and that's why they do it and they they make the effort to line up kind of good bands who fit together and and make a good gig but but certainly for me i'm i'm i would be mainly losing money doing that stuff and so there's no reason for me to do it for money i would just be doing it because i want to get the music out there <clears throat> before we did the second album we were doing it really because we wanted to play the songs live and we we wanted to that was how a lot of them evolved um they evolved through improvising stuff or, or or just literally turning up with the with the charts on on a day and trying playing it in front of an audience there and then and just see just to entertain ourselves really the gigging's already quite stressful but i suppose maybe the stress of that for me i'm not really a jazz musician at all i don't I, i'm more classic classical musician background as, we, as we've said so i don't improvise naturally so it's kind of nice to have that stress to focus on rather than the kind of organizational admin stress i guess mm. maybe that's a part of it yeah i could i, I think i've had largely very positive experiences gigging in london been really lucky with the people i've worked with and then my kind of brush with the, the traditional industry was um just before the second album uh, as a uh, kind of a, what I, I think they, they call themselves i think you would call them a boutique label um label called Folkstock records i just got talking a lot of people i kind of met from gigging doing mainly folk clubs i, I guess it was more on the folk club side i'd seen that this label was doing really good work for them and so, so I just got in touch with Helen the lady the lady who runs the label and just said yeah have a, have a listen to some of the this and do, do you think we could do anything together and she was brilliant she put together it, it was it was kind of like a compilation she, she released she did an EP and she took three tracks that were going to be on the new album and she took three tracks that were on the old album so she kind of curated uh, and in a sense that was what was in it with for her what she enjoyed doing was take finding the music and releasing it and, and promoting it and she's really really good at promoting it and it was kind of a revelation to me I think a lot of independent artists have a bit of a thing about PR is cheating and if you don't if you don't get lucky if someone doesn't come to you to ask about the music you cheated um but it was really helpful for me to see that actually if you do have someone who knows what they're doing and whose job is PR not writing music how that's that helps it's really interesting and also her ear so so the first thing she did was to put out a double a side she put out becoming off the first album I think because I liked it and she put out on the other side of the a side she put out where we're going to because she liked it where we're going to the one the one you you picked up on for the other pod podcast probably would have been the last track off that album that I would have chosen to release and it was kind of a good lesson in that you as the artist don't necessarily you're not the best judge of what your most 
promotable track is what you you're, you're not a good judge of what your best foot put forward is musically i guess it was kind of a good lesson in because as I, as I mentioned to you on twitter that was the track that then got picked up and had a couple of plays on national radio which was something we didn't expect for a, for a minute really you know we thought it maybe you might get it on a late night kind of six music which has happened a couple of times and is absolutely brilliant and and everyone loves for that to happen in, in the uk uh, in our kind of genre the alternative genre is if you can get played on six music bbc six music that's great but yeah it got played on bbc radio 2 um which was kind of one of the more one of the more commercial stations which we were really not expecting at all and yeah i, I guess in a sense i wasn't as attached to that song as i was to other songs off that album so it was it was just really interesting that someone else picked up on it and um thought it was the one to release and yeah so she then did an ep of those two tracks plus another four um got all sorts of kind of nice nice write-ups and radio play so that was that was a really good industry experience and then i think that's that's kind of it really that's that's all of the interesting stuff that happened i then released the second album myself on my label and used that experience really to and did a hell of a lot better with it than i had done with the first album um in the in the sense of the coverage that it got and the radio play because uh, I learned a lot from what Helen did and saw how she operated and and kind of what you have to do. Uh, it was really, really useful experience, I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's super interesting. And I love that you bring up that, it, you know, it feels like cheating when you mm. when you talk about yourself, right? Because as musicians, I think it's, it's pretty common across the board that most of us hate talking about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. We're not the kinds of, we want to go in the room and like lay the track down or work on the song or write the chords or, mm -hmm. you know, we, we don't mind doing all that. But when it comes time to uh, say, hey, look what I did, you know. Yeah, having someone else talk about you is what I think people feel is, is cheating or paying someone to talk about you when obviously that's what the labels have been doing since they've existed yeah. is that they've, they've been the money machine. They had the money to pay PR companies to to get reviewers and, and radio stations to know about the music. Otherwise, how do they know about it? Particularly at the moment, when everyone is literally the radio stations over here are literally drowning in music, and they, they get thousands and thousands of CDs every day, and they literally can't they, they can't they still get CDs even now when they've all said don't send us CDs. They're uh, covering coronavirus. Stop it, please. <laughs> and uh, they're having to say. Don't don't do it. Just send just 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 send the MP threes, please. Uh, sorry, you asked uh, that what what's 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 happening now, didn't you? Um. So yeah, there's the the two main albums and the the Nia Shelley album, which we we did in between. And uh, I did a I did a soundtrack to a, to an independent film. I did that with a that was nice to go back to composing. So we did I did uh, I did it for string quartet. Uh, sorry, string quintet. I played the piano and uh, had bowed saw as well. Sonia from Nia Shelley played bowed bowed saw on that as well it was a horror film hence uh bode saw is useful okay. so that was that was great fun it was nice to go all out on the quintet it's obviously more expensive than the quartet i used andy andy was double bassist anyway and obviously he's playing on most of my stuff anyway so it's it's um not really any any different um and the the most recent thing is i'm i'm just about to release on again on my label slanty mounted head records i'm about to release a new album by an artist called harvey lord who is one of my favorite artists um Again, I think you probably really find him really interesting. Actually, his um, harmony is absolutely just off the charts, brilliant, and the just the, the the writing generally is just off the charts, brilliant. Um, I'm absolutely just I'm, I'm basically blown away by everything he does. Um, but he's a he's a really good. He's just a lovely guy. He lives in um, the the north of England in the Lake District, and um, 
just really doesn't do technology at all. So he's really just up in the Lake District writing amazing songs. Um, there's a lot of music concrete style stuff on this album as well, actually. It's really just a great big long piece of music all kind of joined together by found sound. And he asked me to do the string arrangements for that. So I did that. And then we've been through kind of a, a good six months to a year of just seeing if anybody else wants to release it. And nobody's particularly interested in releasing stuff. I like that by 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 people who who don't promote themselves, I guess, which you 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 can't, you, which you wouldn't find surprising. So um, yeah, we just we thought we'd put it out ourselves, and I've managed to get that played on a couple of uh, radio stations, which was really nice. It's again really gratifying when um, I've been promoting a, a song off that called Feathered Prophet, which again I kind of vandalised it with. Uh, try harmonically vandalized it a bit with the strings it was already pretty weird it's um it's in a kind of really off kilter 9-4 and the Harvey does a does a lot of this thing where he'll kind of is really unstable really unstable keys so it doesn't really settle anywhere so it's, it's it's nice to vandalize you can just sort of put horrible crunches in um so I did some some fun horrible crunches there on the strings and um, yeah, it's really nice where the, the, his, his local BBC radio station played it all week. And it's always really good fun when just something that's actually horribly dissonant and it kind of sneaks under the radar. <laughs> Quite nice. Real quick, sorry. Can you give us the name of that independent film? And then also, that's... is it Harvey Lord? Lord Harvey L-O- Lord, yeah. L-O-L-O-R-D. Okay. And the album is called Well, Old Brother Siskin. Um, well, dot, 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 Old Brother Siskin. Um, and we released a single off that last year called Tarn Song. Tarn is like, uh, I don't know if you have the word Tarn, probably not. It's a uh, uh, northern English word for a lake, basically, um, like, like Loch in Scotland, but a bit lower down the map. I got it. Yeah, Tarn <laughs> yeah. Song. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. So that was, that was the, that, that, that's one of the kind of more, that, that was the, the lead single from, from last year, much, much more accessible one of the much more accessible tracks off the album. But yeah, I just love that album. I, you're not supposed to say that when you wrote strings on it, but it's it's one of my favourite things for, for a very long time. It's really just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, glad you asked that, Eric, because I was going to say, I think I just, we have a loophole here. We could technically probably find a song from that album to bring on to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's out next week. week. Yeah, next next Friday it should appear. Yeah, so places. if it's only just coming out it yeah, can't it might, have been might played appear, on yeah. spotify right there you go <laughs> yeah and the, the soundtrack i don't know if um the director's released the film yet he was doing film festivals but it was called under the ground and i i released sort of i just did laid cut vinyl to order basically for that and um i think where have i put it it's somewhere i think it's on my Bandcamp page i think you can get it just as a big long sort of 20 minute chunk gotcha um, cool yeah got it here wow. a wealth of stuff for us to yeah, what else? What else we got? You have given us a while, Robbie. Yeah, you, you had a question earlier. That was it for us, and then Robbie had his little his question. Yeah, well, I was just uh, li- listening, especially to 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 your second album there, and especially on a red horse, right? Is that? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I you know, another track I, I really really enjoyed, particularly the the string the string writing uh, on that one. I thought was very very compelling. You know, reading a little bit about what you posted on your website. A lot of improvising, a lot of kind of, you know, working it out uh, in the studio. And then uh, it seems like you came back later sort of with the string parts. And I was just sort of interested to hear kind of what that process for writing the string arrangements is like for a situation like that. Do you kind of go in 
the studio with this idea in the back of your head, I've got to put together these arrangements or, or do you just sort of let whatever happens happens and then based on that you think, you know, here's now what I want to do. Yeah, so the way, I think the way it tends to start, it, it, it will always tend to start that I've got the bones of the song and I've got kind of, I, I've, I've generally got enough of the song to write a chart for it and I've got words and I've got a tune and I've got a chart. I'll have the kind of, mostly I'll have the guitar part and the, the foundations of the guitar part as well. It's it's kind of to an extent. It's, it's a, it, with with Avon and Andy. To, as Andy the double bass player and Avon the, the drummer. The way we tend to things, it's a weird thing. Quite often, the first time I've got a recording of the first time I literally went to Andy's flat, gave him the chart for one of this one of the songs off that album called A Room, and I have the recording of the literally the first time we played it. Um, he's he's a ridiculously good player they both are um they're both they're both professional king and musicians they they play with 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 sort of world famous bands as well and he's genuinely one of the best double bass players in the country um and i've got a recording of the first time i played that song with him and it was it never changed literally that was the first the first time he heard it he played that part and he never he might play around it a bit but the first time he didn't even listen to the song we we played it and he played it straight through and it always sounded the same after that so given that i then that happened with say half the songs off the album then the other half i hadn't even finished when we started recording so i'd finished them sort of midway through recording and then we would literally press play we couldn't even see each other because of the way that studio's laid out we would play the song with avon and andy hearing it for the first time and we'd sort of maybe do two or three takes but the arrangement as it came out between the three of us was how the trio arrangement then was fixed so there's a song called uh Widdishins off the album which that's a really good example of of one of those songs where what what those two what the two of them are playing and kind of the detail of what i'm playing on the guitar arose out of those sort of two or three studio takes um and all that existed before that those takes was the the, the structure of the song for on a red horse it was slightly different so i'd kind of had the on a red horse fixed my parts and a lot of Andy's bowed sections I wrote. Um, I wasn't. We, we'd never improvised in that. It, it's all. Um, it's all octatonic. I don't, do you call it octatonic or diminished? And the diminished scalings. I think you call octatonic. it. Do you call it? Yeah. I never know who calls what, what. What anymore? So we we'd never really busked that before. So <laughs> I just. I was. I, I remember writing those bass solos. Just I sat. I was sat at lunch at the day job. Um, and we had a rehearsal at the in the evening, so I just was literally scribbling those down on 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 score paper for Andy to play in the evening, and we played those bits, and we we ran through that, and then again beyond that, everything else apart from those bass solos and my part, we more or less developed in over three takes in the studio. Um, we then had a couple more cracks at it because it's really difficult and. Um, the vibe it required was extremely aggressive. So it kind of went through a process of me going, that's great guys, but I need more and more and more until everyone's fingers were bleeding, that sort of thing. So it's and it's kind of a, a thing that got a bit difficult on the album. Some of the more aggressive tracks, I think the sound I the, the sound I had in my head was was metal but without any sonic distortion. So that's it's on a red horse kind of I think the best the, the closest I got to that uh, kind of replaced the distortion with the, the heavy dissonance throw two so that the heavier sections have two octatonic modes uh, a fifth apart 
going for both octonic modes, I guess you'd say. Um, the, the, the lines go, the, the solos run together a fifth apart. And I just, that was a kind of a nice, it makes a horrible, nice warlike sound. But at certain points, it's just probably all the notes at once that, <laughs> that exist. Um, not, not that exist, that they exist in the Western musical language. Um, and the, so, 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 so yeah, that we, that, that was how it developed between the three of us. It, it was the, the, the kind of the more bandy sections with the, with the, with the pit, with the pit, pit space and the, and, and, and the, and the drums that kind of evolved over a couple of takes. And then as that's all evolving, I, I kind of have a sense of what needs to go onto it in, in string, string wise. And I think a lot of the string quartet arrangement on that was wanting to add violence and add more dissonance. Um, and yeah, then it was literally, I, I took the, I, I took the stems out away from the studio and listened to what I'll tend to do is listen to it on a commute or on a journey. And I'll just imagine what, what I want to hear. And that's really where it came from. And then at just a certain point, I'll sit down, write it all down um, and then give it to some very scared string players. Um, they, they, <laughs> they tend to come into my sessions a bit worried because um, there's a track on the album called Strange and Charm, which was a, kind of a slightly less successful experiment in a similar kind of area, but that's got some horrific parts of them to play in it and just loads of jumping between sort of spiccato, pizzicato and um, just all over the place. And they, but they figure it out eventually and they tend to do it in three hours because I'm on a budget and they're nice people. So, <laughs> but they all leave very tired out. But that, yeah, that was how, how that, that arrangement evolved. It, it was kind of take the stems out of the studio, listen to it loads, hear what needs to be on there. And then with the string players, again, it was just another case of saying, it's too nice, it's too nice, it's too nice, play it more horribly, stop playing like classical musicians and, and play like you hate your violin, like it's wronged you. Um, <laughs> I've actually used that score direction before. <laughs> um, I've actually put as if the cello has wronged you. Um, and it tends to get the message across eventually, or just, just put like six, fortissimo times six and there's the score for on a red horse is actually on my website it's, i think it's got fffffr written on it um <laughs> just to sort of yeah try and convey the level of violence required i find that's that's quite an interesting thing to try and get out of classical players actually is to try and get them past technique um it's something i'm going to do we, we talked briefly about uh wind players earlier and the the, the next stuff i want to do is going to have quite a lot of low winds on it so i think i'm going to go a bit more all out on that one spend a bit more time with the players and spend a bit more time breaking them i guess and just <laughs> just just like try back to, up in your image try to get them to overblow <laughs> and not not worry that not worry they're making horrible noises and then yeah just just play wrong basically i guess a bit I think um, wind players tend to be a little more open-minded generally yeah about, <laughs> about these things it's getting string players to like play an uneven time signatures even is just like trying to pull teeth at times uh -huh. yeah and these these guys are absolutely amazing they're um they're they're just they're, they're wonder, wonderful people and wonderful players but it's i think it's just when you're asking anyone to 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 read they they turn up completely blind and in three hours they've got to record that track on a red horse and a horrible six minute thing with 24, 24, four bars at the end of it. It was just all over the place. And then um, two, two, I think Strange and Charm's got two against three against four polyrhythms. It's, it's, it's got a section where I think my the, the top three, my top three fingers are playing in six, my thumb's playing in 
three across the six. Some of the string players are playing in three. Some of them are playing in six. Some of them are playing in four across it all. And they're just, it, they're amazing. They just turn up and they do all of that for me in six hours for the, for, for the normal, for the normal rate, you know, so can't <laughs> complain. They're brilliant. I don't just one day need to spend the proper money and spend a week with them and just do it properly. Cause I think what you would get out of it would be absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's a really, I mean, again, I think we all assumed there must have been a lot of music going on behind the scenes of, of like James and the mind step, but yeah, especially just hearing you really break apart this process for us and all of these different uh, musical worlds really coming together, especially uh, with like um a very diverse musical upbringing, it sounds like, really makes sense. And it's cool to hear how, uh, you know, in your career, it doesn't sound to me like you're really uh, partitioning the classical, the high, you know, new art music away from, like, your, your pop writing and, like, your songwriting, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, I guess that's my thing, in, in, in a way. It's, um, and... I don't I don't see them as different things I see I, I think it's entirely possible to compose within the three minute pop song um and for it still to be the three minute pop song and I think people do that I, I mean sort of going back to going back to Nick Drake if you listen to Nick Drake songs they're they're three minute four minute pop songs with a huge amount of composition sat within them um just hugely intricate guitar parts and so much going on um once you sort of zone in on it so yeah i don't think i don't think the form is a is a bar to is a bar to composing really and i i, I can't I, we were i think before you came out i think we we're talking about my first composition tutor um i ended up with an absolutely brilliant guy called called joe didell um and he's so open to all of this stuff and thinks very similarly from the classical side i mean he's got a huge amount of pop influence in his classical writing and he does arrangements for for, for loads of really big bands um but the first guy i got in the first year he would he was a, he was a real kind of arch modernist and he would refuse to he would refuse to mark a song who uh, would just be this is, this has got he literally said to me once this has got chord cycles in it i won't i won't i won't consider it i won't consider it a piece of music basically because it's 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 a it's a pop song yeah which is just yeah completely completely against what i think i suppose yeah that that mindset seems to have really like turned on a dime in like the mm -hmm. last oh geez i don't know 20 30 years you know like postmodern pop pop music is now thoroughly integrated in into like the yeah. kind of at least especially on the east coast like the the, the new music community is is really re-embracing um like unabashedly embracing pop as, as mm -hmm. being a integral part of many people's uh, musical upbringing i mean the kind of a joke at, at peabody where i've been doing my my composition studies is that like one in five of the composers at peabody probably played guitar in a metal band or yeah. like a prog mm -hmm. metal band or something like yeah. that you know i really want to do that i want to play guitar in a prog metal band it'd be excellent <laughs> i got to play a keyboard in a power metal band for a few years oh, which, amazing that was a lot of fun um, it was it was a lot of really fun orchestration and I I, I miss it and I, I think they're still doing pretty well but oh, yeah, I'd love yeah. it so I would love it so much I just <laughs> attempt if I had I just wish I had the time to learn ridiculous to, to, to ridiculously shred guitar or or to or to play the drums with a double kick pedal or oh my god our, our drummer... I had, if I had the ability to 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 growl which I definitely don't. <laughs> 
our drummer was absolutely shredded like you know to play yeah. to play blast beats for power yeah. <laughs> he he is actually now get this he he's not in the band anymore the current lineup he is now a professional wrestler in japan oh, like the amazing. japanese wrestling circuit because what? he became a he became a bodybuilder and like his, his his like legs from playing double bass pedal are just so so shredded like the and dream for me that's the, the dream being in a power metal band and then being a pro wrestler that's you can you can watch him and you can like watch his <laughs> matches on youtube i don't i don't remember what his his wrestling name is but it's it's really funny the dude can like bench press ridiculous amounts of weight and like it's it's hysterical excellent but yeah the um I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm just, um, I'm quite, I'm quite big on the metal at the moment. I just, um, been, uh, I, I went through a phase. I went through a phase last year of just being completely obsessed with Slipknot's third album, and uh, just, um, yeah, analysing that. And uh, there's loads of loads of great stuff going on on that album. But <clears throat> I kind of think that was at least everything that we, I had prepared, and I think that was uh, about. What do, what do you fellas think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's all we had. Yeah, we have we definitely have um Yeah, I feel to like I've given giving you plenty to work with there. Sorry, going going on forever now. <laughs> no. Oh no, 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 that's that's why you're here. Yeah. I guess you can at least you can edit it. That's the thing when you're doing a doing a recording, at least it doesn't doesn't matter if I talk for too long, then you can just uh, just chop it all out. Well, like also off like off the mic, we have a lot of um kind of side content that we've been we've been kind of working on and a lot of it is frankly just banter if yeah. <laughs> humorously uh aimed but but definitely like music banter i think mm -hmm. right well thank you so much for listening uh and thanks again so much to james edge for for agreeing to come on our show and and, and share all this you know this wealth of knowledge and, and insight with us uh, if you enjoyed the show, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Drop Haystack, and then on Facebook and Instagram, we're Drop the Needle in the Haystack. So make sure to follow us there, and you know, follow our show on Spotify or wherever you listen to our podcast. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, no, a... and also we should we should probably tell let James say like his socials and his stuff. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. broadcast yeah. professionals. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, Google James Edge and the Mind Step, and uh, you'll find everything. I think it's uh, and the Mind Step on Twitter, which which I'm, I'm not on a lot, but um, I will I will see notifications. Um, James Edge and the Mind Step on Facebook, James Edge and the Mind Step dot com, um, and band James Edge and the Mind Step dot Bandcamp dot com is where all the music is and where physical product is. Gotcha. Yeah. So everyone, go and follow James. Check out all the stuff he talked about because i'm sure these projects are awesome i'm definitely googling it all right after this i'm looking forward to that new release you got coming next week yeah as always thanks for listening everyone we'll catch you next week <laughs>